Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your patience. I'm Marek Podakiewicz. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. I teach uh, geography and strategy, and that's why I knew I would be late, because I had to go to Percival, pick up my nine-year-old, deliver her to Maryland, and come back for Dr. Schindler. I would not lose uh, an opportunity to see Dr. Schindler. Uh, I'm glad Dr. Tierney is here too, to spy on us. Thank you, we appreciate it. Dr. Schindler walks into the Yeti-like footsteps of Professor Herbert Rommerstein. Now, Herb would say exactly the same thing. What are you worried about? <laughs> this is just propaganda. Nihil novi on, nothing new under the sun. Nihil novi sub sol. We keep rediscovering the wheel in this town and fain, I guess, fake surprise, when in fact it's all clear and simple. And the trick is continuity, continuity of knowledge which we provided the Institute of World Politics. Professor, Professor Romerstein taught here for years how to recognize the beast and what to do with it. And Dr. Schindler came to us indirectly or directly she is one of his babies. We're extremely proud of her after completing a very serious stint here and she was so practical she barely took any of my non-required classes because I'm a historian so she thought at that point that this was all bunk. But she acquired here a method which then has served her very well I gather, even in her professional life. She traveled to England because it's easier to get a PhD among people who get drunk. <laughs> you see, the English are back to the 19th century before uh, the Methodists brought sobriety <coughs> under Queen Victoria back into fashion. So they're in a cycle of drunk. So not too many were interested at the University of Leeds to study, but Caitlin was. Uh, apparently she hooked up with an American scholar. Is it right? Yeah. yeah. A professor from the University of Southern California. Imagine that, to travel to England to imbibe the wisdom of the sun. <laughs> yes, at the end of the seventh ray. She focused on World War One propaganda. I told, by the way, Herb at the end of his life what she intended to do after school here and I heard a little bit about her um, shenanigans in England besides share and he again in his raspy voice say reach out Shelf 3, book 17, page 39. And here there was something significant that has to do with World War I propaganda. I don't know if you have ever met a human computer. This is as close as it gets to Professor Romerstein. Herb had everything stored in his head. And I mean in an extremely highly organized way. 
Caitlin does too. She's anal. Uh, since I double in caliphatism and Islam, she was, a, her curiosity was piqued. She once recommended a book to me. Lo and behold, one of the most anal exercise in Islamic sects from more or less the 8th century. This is the book she picked, the most anal, very valuable to me after uh, <coughs> reading Rasulullah, you know, his first biography from uh, to the late 8th century. You, you want some Germanic order into your universe. So without much more ado, I love to beat Herb's drum, and I love to beat Caitlin's drum, but she does it much better for herself than I can for her. Please give her a warm welcome. Hands down, best introduction ever. <laughs> Hopefully I live up to it. <laughs> so I want to thank you all for uh, coming to this lecture. I'm tremendously honored to have been asked to give this year's lecture in honor of Professor Herbert Romerstein. Uh, I never had the opportunity to take one of his classes or to meet him, but I have learned so much from his work on propaganda generally, and more specifically on Russian active measures, as probably many people in this room can attest. Our nation is indebted to his contributions in the area of propaganda, public diplomacy, and Russian active measures. We in future nations will hopefully continue to learn from him, though he is no longer with us. So in light of the renewed intention and interest in such things as Russian influence, disinformation, fake news, and deception, I will be talking about propaganda in the public interest, and how the United States has handled propaganda in the past, and how that might shape the nation's response today. Now what do I mean by public interest? In the case of propaganda, what I mean is public panic, essentially, or heightened paranoia and fear that propaganda is an all-powerful, absolutely effective tool used by America's enemies to weaken our nation. While I would not dispute the danger posed by propaganda, I believe there is more danger in a panicked response or reaction to propaganda. So these are some of the headlines that were uh, in the press not only during World War I, but following World War I. Um, looks vaguely familiar to some of the press headlines we see today. <coughs> Much of my own research examines America's views and reactions to propaganda throughout our nation's history. As a student and scholar of propaganda, and as others who study propaganda can attest, the subject as a matter of public interest has ebbed and flowed since the term first became prominent as a, tool, uh, as a political tool in the early 20th century. And as a subject of public interest, at moments of, moments of extreme interest, propaganda in the public eye tends to border on hysteria. Suspicion and concern, as evidenced by public reaction following World War I, World War II, and the onset of the Cold War. Academics and practitioners find ourselves today in a moment in time and history where propaganda is once again 
of public interest. Again, we're seeing some similar headlines and articles. Though with all this public interest in Russian influence and disinformation, deception and fake news, as well as various terrorist organizations' use of social media to influence others to either join in their violence or to conduct violence in their name, rarely do we actually hear or use the word propaganda in the media coverage. As scholar Brett Gary observes, the word propaganda is not utilized in American discourse. The term is absent from media coverage discussing Russia's manipulation of the 2016 election, so that the term is more readily applied to terrorist content. Propaganda in U.S. culture since World War I has come to connote a technique that disseminates anti-democratic ideas. I'll show you what I mean. Sorry, some, something's out of order here. Bear with me. We'll come back to that. Okay. So, Russia, if we examine more recent examples of propaganda, we see how propaganda content does not necessarily promote a specific ideology. Rather, the content is intended to elicit a behavior by playing on accepted perspectives of the target audience, playing on their sympathies. So more recently, in the last month or so, we've seen um, some media coverage that uh, looked back at how the Russians use social media. They targeted, they, they tailored the content on social media to certain audiences, everything from cat videos to um, different political um, content. Um, in one of the uh, news or the journal articles on Russia disin uh, disinformation and how they see disinformation, it talks about how they use and target different media platforms based on who the audience of that platform is and also the dissemination um, streams of that media platform. So it's a very targeted kind of, they know this media platform has this audience, and the information from that media platform gets picked up by other media platforms. So what they'll target left or right-wing media content, and as it gets picked up and picked up, it eventually makes its way into the mainstream. And um, this CNN I report was actually used to see um, disinformation um, in Sweden. Um, this was another one. I don't know if anyone saw recently. There, uh, the Russian Foreign Ministry made comments on Twitter and made a public press statement that uh, the United States is uh, supporting Daesh. Um, this news, supposedly news outlet, took it a little step further and said the United Nations is also supporting um, Daesh, which is great. Um, and then if we look at what this news organization claims to uh, support, it's talking about like Western moral tradition and value of human rights, and it's all very, very lovely. Um, and then um, these are, so hope, if you read the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Washington, Wall Street Journal, you probably see these inserts. I think it's like once a month they put them in there. Uh, this is the China Watch is per, uh, put together by China Daily, which is a government-controlled uh, 
news outlet. And uh, more recently, Russia Today used to put an insert into the Washington Post until we, the Department of Justice flagged it as a foreign agent under the um, foreign, uh, foreign Agent Registration Act, which I'll be talking about later. Um, so these are flagged inside these uh, prominent national news platforms as advertisements. What's interesting about the content of China Watch is, is that they tend to be economic in nature. It's not promoting Maoist ideology. Uh, it also highlights Chinese culture and food as well. Um, more recently, you may have seen in um, on social media and in the Washington Post um, content put out by the Saudi American Public Relations Affairs Committee, um, SAPRAC, um, in partnership with the Embassy of Bahrain. This this ad was actually in the Washington Post um, about, I don't know, two months ago. Now, if you're reading the Washington Post, you would maybe understand why Bahrain and the Saudis would be interested in linking to the United States, Qatar and North Korea, because, you know, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and, and Bahrain are not really getting along with Qatar these days. Um, so it would make sense that they would want to target the American audience because of all the other media press coverage of our relationship with North Korea. Um, in 2002, the DOD gathered the American press together to demonstrate how the Taliban and Al-Qaeda was manipulating um, bomb damage in order to show atrocities um, that the U.S. Um, or coalition forces had actually done such as targeting mosques or hospitals or civilian targets. Um, and this is taken from their presentation they gave to the journalists. So again, the, the, these AQ and the Taliban are not promoting Muslim ideology. They're trying to make us look bad through our own media. The first step to recovery is admitting you have a problem. And America's problem with propaganda is compounded by fear and the certainty of its effectiveness and pervasiveness, as well as moral questions about the use of propaganda in the context of a liberal democratic society. There is an assumption of a liberal democratic society where a government capable of undermining the democratic process using propaganda endangers democracy. Propaganda is not a new concept, and as the last 17 years have demonstrated since 9-11, information as a weapon, propaganda, is growing in use by nations and non-state actors. The U.S. Cannot, be afford to, cannot afford to be hemmed in by fear and questions. As I will be discussing with America's past, we have been in this position before we are today. But we learned how our adversaries used propaganda and worked diligently to find ways to protect the nation and our democratic values, which are the foundations of the United States. We must recall the past experience and knowledge to help defend the nation and protect our democratic society. So I'm going to shortcut this a little. <coughs> Sorry, I'm going to go back to the other slide.
So in defending the public interest, we've seen different ways in which we might defend the public interest. Much like previous reactions to propaganda, there have been recommendations to legislate protection. So this is, um, I think the social media executives are actually on Capitol Hill again this week. Um, talking about how to protect the public and uh, keep foreign influence from being able to uh, use uh, social media content. Um, and uh, in the spring of 2016, there were several proposals made by the Senate and the House to um, monitor and curtail not only uh, Daesh's propaganda, terrorist propaganda, but also uh, Chinese and Russian propaganda. Um, the other way that um, people have sought to protect the U.S. from uh, the effects of propaganda is essentially censorship, so blocking it. And then the other way has been through public exposure and public education and informing. So uh, these are some of the examples where more recently we've seen this. <clears throat> a century ago, following the peace talks in Paris, the American public was shocked by revelations of British and German use of propaganda to persuade the U.S. public to either support the U.S. joining the war in support of the Allies or to refrain from joining the war at all. Additional revelations about the U.S. government's use of propaganda compounded the public reaction to propaganda. The extensive use of propaganda during World War I and the subsequent investigations and revelations, sensational media headlines related to propaganda during the war, brought the subject and activity, which had been around for centuries, to the fore, leading to the creation of a new academic field of study, communication studies, and a lingering debate about how to defend a democratic public from foreign influence while preserving free speech in the marketplace of ideas. Post-war awareness and concern about propaganda began a new intellectual effort for communication studies and propaganda analysis. I was trying to come up with a comparison for um, the explosion of interest that occurred between the 1920s and the 30s, and the closest thing I could come up to was uh, big data analysis, network analysis, artificial intelligence, and uh, behavioral economics. But none of these really got the, the public attention and the coverage that propaganda influence and how to protect the public from foreign influence as what occurred in uh, the 1920s, the 1930s, and later after World War II uh, with the onset of the Cold War um, in the 1940s, late 1940s and early 50s. Ironically, the same intellectuals and journalists which aided the Committee on Public Information's efforts during World War I instigated a social and intellectual movement against propaganda in the 1920s and 30s. Brett Gary uh, wrote that post-war writers maintained a very negative view of propaganda and believed propaganda to be a threat to the nation. Their assumptions led to a deep fundamental divide within uh, modern American liberalism, especially questions over public versus expert responsibility and over matters of individual liberty versus collective security. Mass media was blamed for the disillusionment with 19th century liberal ideas such as informed intercourse 
and rational public and the eventual triumph of, good, of truth and good government. And we had two of you, um, kind of opposing viewpoints that kind of competed with one another through the 20s and the 30s. One was put forward by Walter Lippmann, uh, famous for his uh, book on public opinion. Uh, and the other one was put forward by uh, philosopher and psychologist John Dewey. Lippmann was, Lippmann was uh, arguably called the realist solution or uh, promoted uh, expertise democracy. He, uh, he had a real uh, diminished faith in the rationality of the public. And he believed new communication technology and the advent of mass society made democratic theory irrelevant. He believed scientists could and should develop method to kind of uh, create experts that would be um, not susceptible to the influence of propaganda. He also argued that the public had over, um, created fictional temporary ideas about the nation and the world. And the flaw in democratic theory lie in how to communicate reality to the public. Both uh, Lippmann and Harold Laswell, who's famous for his work on uh, propaganda technique, argued for democracy by the few where experts would determine political discourse, uh, political course. Um, and they believed this because they believed the public was not capable of informing themselves and making critical decisions. And these views were based on these pessimistic assumptions about public incompetence and susceptibility. Um, I would argue that uh, Lemon's theory about public diplomacy or public democracy and propaganda is um, perhaps a little concerning if you're if you're a propagandist because uh, the public is a more unwieldy target and often takes longer to elicit a reaction. However, if you know as a propagandist that there is a small group of experts with access to policymakers, guess which one you're going after? Um, <laughs> um, while highlighting the dangers of propaganda, Lipman also pointed out the usefulness of propaganda. Um, and he also believed that the problem with democracies actually lied, in uh, uh, lied with journalism. He argued that if the press were truly free and professional standards were enforced, democratic discourse could be saved. So if we look at modern press today with the um, sensationalization and emotionalization of the headlines, the 24-hour news, breaking news model, the drastic decrease uh, in local news sources and cuts to investigative journalism as well as editorial freedom, with different news outlets, you can kind of see where we haven't much moved past where we were 100 years ago. John Dewey um, and American journalist Will Irwin also believed expert-driven uh, democracy was flawed. They believed political leaders would censor information based on what they believed the public should or should not have. Um, Dewey said industrialization and advances in technology created a new age of human relationships which still had local ties or connections but became more dependent on mass media for knowledge and entertainment. Sounds vaguely familiar to how we interact with information today. As a result, the public was increasingly uninvolved with local society and political matters of the local community. Dewey believes 
Democracy could be saved for the future through public education and greater participation in politics at the local level. So those were the kind of two philosophical viewpoints that influenced not only the discourse about propaganda in the United States, but also how the United States should handle it. The two kind of opposing viewpoints as to which was the better solution. And we, the United States kind of walked the line between both from about the 1920s up through the Cold War. The other way in which the U.S. attempted to protect the public from foreign influence was through legislation. Prior to World War I, there was nothing in the U.S. legal code to charge those who sought to influence or subvert the U.S. government or the public, but this changed after World War I uh, with the passage of the Espionage Act in 1917 and then later the Sedition Act in 1918. Um, both were, uh, the Espionage Act was passed just months after we uh, declared war on Germany. The Sedition Act, if you've ever read it, is uh, eyebrow raising um, that it was passed in the United States. It, uh, it says that anyone who willfully makes or conveys false reports, false statements with the intent to interfere with the operation or success of military or naval forces, promote the success of enemies, or willfully make or convey false reports or false statements, willfully utter, write, publish, or any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government, the United States or the Constitution, or the military or naval forces, or willfully displays the flag of any foreign enemy, or incites or advocates for the curtailment of war production, or uh, teaches and defends anything that would uh, violate or be against the U.S. government can be punished uh, by a $10,000 fine or, and or imprisonment for 20 years. Um, this, uh, this bill or this act was enforced through 1921 when it was repealed um, for out of concerns about its violation of the First Amendment. The next act that was passed to kind of curtail foreign influence and propaganda came out of the McCormick and Dickstein Committee in uh, 1934 and 35, when a fascist plot was unveiled uh, to overthrow the US government. They began an investigation into Nazi propaganda, um, uh, as well as uh, communist propaganda. And this led to the Foreign Agents Registration Act and the Voorhees Act. They're basically the same thing. The only difference between the two was the FARA Act was under the State Department. The Voorhees Act was under the Department of uh, uh, Justice. Uh, and until uh, later on, it was they were all put under the Department of Justice. And basically, both acts required that uh, if you were, say, under the FARA Act, if you are the information officer in the British Embassy, you are required to... Uh, register with the Department of Justice as a foreign agent. Um, if you're a public diplomacy officer, you're required to register with the uh, FARA Act as well. If you belong to a political action group, that's that was what was covered under the Voorhees Act. So the, the Saudi-American relations group, the SAPRAC thing that we looked at earlier, they are required to, because they're a political action organization, they're required to register with the DOJ. Um, and the way the law worked is it didn't go after the content that those entities put out. It went after 
the fact that you either registered or you did not register. And the idea behind the act was to encourage um, full disclosure, basically. It allowed people to see the content that they were consuming so that they knew when they were looking at the content that this is put out by an entity, by an organization that has an agenda and that the facts may or may not be the facts as they present them. And leaves it up to the consumer to determine whether or not they need to do more, more research. The other way in which the United States um, defended against propaganda was through education and exposure. And I would argue, um, and others may disagree, but uh, the Smith-Mutt Act in 1948, which formally established US public diplomacy, um, was a way in which the United States defended itself against foreign influence abroad. Um, and if you look at how that bill came to be passed after much hemming and hawing before 1948, it does kind of, um, the, the circumstances around which that bill was passed kind of sh um, shapes that. So 1945, uh, the Office of War Information and all the other information offices that were working during World War I were effectively shut down, with the exception of the Office of War Information and elements of it, including the U.S. Information Service, USIS. Um, and they made temporary provisions that until a bill could be passed, that they would kind of operate in the embassies overseas. And there were several attempts to pass legislation in order to continue this effort that the State Department viewed to be critical to US foreign relations and foreign diplomacy. And there were a lot of concerns about US government being seen as perpetuating or putting out propaganda. Again, the question of we're a democratic society. We, we don't like the idea of governments putting out information in any way, shape, or form, including our own government. In 1947, a group of senators and congressmen actually went to Eastern Europe to tour uh, the embassies, um, and what they saw concerned them. They saw Soviet um, attempts to undermine relationships with those nations um, by undermining the US image and putting out this information about the United States. It was based on that that the congressmen and the senators came back and the Smith-Munt Act was actually passed, well, relatively without too much um, hemming and hawing. And it was through that act that throughout the Cold War, the United States, um, through the US Information Agency, as well as the Department of State, was able to kind of expose and educate the public about Soviet attempts to either spread disinformation or propaganda. And of course, Herbert Rommerstein and his colleague Todd Leventhal were integral to this in the 1980s, um, according to Nicholas Call, By exposing Soviet lies, Rommerstein and Todd Leventhal not only cut off a significant line of attack, but also disrupted the image of the glasnost. Leventhal re realized that discrediting the strategic adversary <coughs> should be the core objective of counter-disinformation work. This is the most effective tool that they had, was just simply exposing that. And that is Herbert uh, Romerstein's legacy um, for us in the United States. So we've been in this position before. This is not new. I'm going to have to flip through this. I apologize. This is all out of order. Checked it before I had it. 
I love that tweet. Um, if you can't read it, it says, uh, the Voorhees Act is my favorite concept in the U.S. Code. Don't forget to register your violent revolution. So if you're planning one, register today. Uh, so we've been here before. Uh, a state of shock, disbelief, outrage, a bit of fear. If Russia has done this, what will they do next? What else have they done? We've asked these questions before 100 years ago. The questions were similar, but we were asking it about Britain, Germany, and our own US government. From my own perspective, looking at America's past experience and what I see today, I am cautiously optimistic some days, and other days, deeply concerned.